Congratulations, you have won this year's subscription. I'll buy puns and I'll make your story. I'm concerned and to set it up before it burns. My opinions, mm -hmm. my opinions, mm -hmm. my opinions. get started hello it is um christmas eve or as the jews would say monday and yeah. uh, we are recording our, our fourth podcast it is definitely monday um this is this is your co-host joanna and this is dylan <laughs> and this is impossibility of opinions or opinions, depending on what uh, you read <laughs> yeah our um we we had a plan to get a, a new logo and I'll tell you about this later, Joanna, but I, I think that that is currently not really moving. So Yeah, I noticed. It's okay. Get, I can go and I it's plan. been long enough that I feel like I can go back in and add it and make a new logo that says opinions without feeling like I mean annoyed. you could I can do it. You you could do it, yeah. Just I mean, um, just as a holdover to have the word spelled correctly. That's all. Yes. Nothing that's else except something. that. <laughs> yeah, I just yeah, you're right. I just was like, while we're replacing it, let's just get yeah, like, a no, real it logo. It makes total sense that you would think um, that way, but But we have to I don't know. Anyway, uh, we'll f try to find someone who has artistic skills. If you listen to this podcast and have artist have logo design skills or know someone who does, yeah, uh, please let us know. Uh, yeah. Sorry, there was there was some thread I was picking up there. Oh, have you gone to any um, Chinese restaurants lately? Are you talking to me? Yeah. The only other person on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> I don't think so, unless the crappy Chinese place down the street from my work counts. Sorry, crappy Chinese place down the street from my work. You you are excellent in your crappiness, but you are crappy. Um, but I it, go it there is, a as, lot. As, as, so. as, as Film Crit Hulk would say, a good, bad Chinese restaurant. That's right. Quite, okay. quite good, bad. Um, I mean, we all go there a lot. Although now there's a sushi delivery place, so we don't really go there as much. It, like when my coworker orders sushi from the same place at the same time I do in another room, it drives me bonkers. I'm like, just talk to me if you're going to order sushi because we look ridiculous. That's all. That's the end of my story. Okay. So you don't do the thing with uh, with your aunt or anything where you guys go out for Chinese Oh, we food. will tomorrow on Christmas oh, Day. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's Christmas it's, Day it's specifically. It's actually going to be me and Neil and his sister. We're going to go with Chinese. And we're going to watch a TV show called Counterpart. Okay. That that rings some tiny bell, but I don't remember what it is. Yeah. Um. Okay, that sounds good. Um, I was talking to who was I talking to? I was talking to Marie about that tradition, and I was saying that it would really suck if you grew up in a Jewish family and you hated Chinese food. Yeah, that would suck. Um, I think you know, I, one, like that same coworker who orders in sushi today. She was like, "Yeah, my friend told me that all Jewish people." go and eat Chinese food and go to the movies on Christmas. Is that true? And I'm like, you've been alive for what, 35 years, 34 years. And this is like the first time anyone has ever told you that this is a thing that happens. Um, I did not know about the movies City. thing. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, it, well, are they, are they a lifelong New Yorker? Long Islander. Lifelong. Okay. So yeah. So th Long that's Island. weird. No, it was weird. Yeah. And she's, um, she's like one of my better friends at work. Um, but it was, so then I explained to her that, yes, it was very common, and yes, I was probably going to do just that, and it was fine. Oh, so the the first thing we're talking about today is why is this episode so late? Uh, so Why we... is this episode so late, Dylan? 
so our, we're trying to do this podcast on a monthly schedule. Our last episode was recorded sometime in October. Uh, I think early, early, late October, early October. I don't, I don't have the answer. I know. Maybe we recorded in early November. That sounds more. Yeah, I think we recorded early November and we put it out. I don't know. It's been basically we're. So I think it's at least we're at least a month that, but we're not going to miss a month because the last yeah the last podcast was recorded in late October, released in early November. That was it. Um, yeah. And then um, this one is now being recorded almost two months later. But if I edit really really hard, we can get the sound time for December. And then recording our January episode in uh, when you visit. In the, second week, there, yeah. in the second week of January. But why was this so late? So first, uh, the way we, we record this podcast is that um, I record files on my end and Joanna records files on her end. And then I edit it. But that requires Joanna to actually give me her audio files. And she... That has nothing to do with this episode being late. Yes, it does. Because so... So to... to Because um, we could have recorded this episode anytime. Well, I think the idea is that we... we um, we edit the previous episode before we record a new episode. Nothing is ever my fault, Dylan. No, Don't sh- be ridiculous. Shut up. That's anyway. That's the that's the thing. I have to. We have to put out the previous it episode. It took me fucking record. forever to get you the files. But in my defense, I had a lot going on. No, no, we're getting there. So first, in your defense, you actually didn't have a lot going on. You just forgot for like a week. You just composed your total space case. Then <laughs> first, in my defense, I just fucking forgot for yeah, a week. Okay. Yeah. Then I yeah, bugged you. Defense. Then I bugged you and said, "Hey, Joanne, I need these." Around that point, and then you had like two days of dorking around, but like I'll get to it. Then you had a bunch of stuff happen in your life. You had some family emergency stuff. Things were chaotic for a while. So then you had an actual good excuse for not sending them. Then uh, you finally uh, did send them over, <laughs> at which point California caught on fire. And Sacramento Stupid had. California. Yeah, Sacramento was just where I live, which is full of really bad uh, smoke everywhere. Uh, there's a whole story about the terribleness of that. I mean, having to go to work at the downtown library, which had an AC system sucking in smoke and, you know, choking us all. But um, but the long and short of that is that it made it hard for me to edit the podcast or – no, then we couldn't record it because um, I had to have like an air filter unit on it made a bunch of background noise that would have messed things up. And also my throat was all screwed up. Um also, to do this podcast, oh, Dylan um, froze. The I don't know if you can hear me, but what? Froze. What? Okay, I heard some beeping. It says poor network connection. Oh, I see what the problem is. Hold on. Did Did you do a thing? Yeah, I did a thing. Give me a second. What'd you do? Um. Okay, we'll see if this works. Hold on. Did you decide to start downloading something or? No. Is everything still working? Yeah, everything you works fine me for me. Yes. Um, this computer is a wired connection, but it also has a wireless card in it. And unless at, at some point it occasionally resets and connects to the wireless network instead of being the wired connection, then I have to disconnect from the wireless network to can, get it to be. Can't a you disable the wireless card in, in device manager? Yes, I'm sure I could do that. That would probably be a great solution. That would, pr- yeah, but I yeah. haven't done it yet. So that's okay. I mean, I understand is. that is something that would take you, you know, really a whole 60 seconds to do. So I, I can, yeah, kind of get... like uploading files to a, a yeah. Google drive. I know. Yeah, I know. I'm aware. Well, we will um, maybe on the break. Um, Anyway, you so your JP assignment was for me to play this board game Illamot uh, and get back to you on it. It was uh, a good, good game. That required you to send me Illamot. Which I uh, did. Which you did. Um, but UPS hates me. But you did make a fatal mistake, which is that you chose to send it UPS. Which, which you know, is a, natural, is a natural thing for many people to do. But if you had stopped and really thought about it, 
you would have been like, oh no, Dylan, I'm I not sending. Tell you you're kind of a dick. Wait, no, I'm. What, what's being dickish about this? That seems completely reasonable. Oh my god, you're um, such an asshole. What? No, I, I'm. D- I'm. D- it's completely reasonable, but if you had stopped and thought about it, you know, then you I, would have realized what anyone who has, you know. Who has common sense knows, which is that you should never use one of the major postal systems no, in the it United would be, States. It would no, it because is, that makes no sense. No, that's why I said stopped and thought about it. Intuitively, it makes sense to use one of the major postal systems in the United States. Also, not intuitively, it makes sense because they deliver packages for me, many people all over the country. But, but, I you have known me for many years. And you would agree that for probably three or four years, I've been regaling you with stories about how UPS screws up delivering things to me like all the time they did it in yeah, seattle but I don't pay and they got like what is it could be ups it could be fedex it could be usps no it could be no DHL, they, they're fine whatever they are they're fine Who's all of fine? them are fine only ups oh. screws with me oh. that's why they're always up i mean i guess you weren't paying attention oh. but they're always ups stories so okay yeah you, you everyone else they get the fedex here does have a problem where they like to leave the packages on the doorstep uh but so far nothing has been stolen so at least i gotcha. get the package right um but everyone else, yeah. You know, USPS, like, they have a – the great thing with them is they have a key to the building, right? So they come yeah. into the building, leave the package. But UPS, uh, what they like to do is come when I'm not here. And in this case, so they gave Joanna a tracking number, which was garbage. It didn't work. It was broken. They delivered the package to me when I wasn't here. So, of course, I couldn't get it. Um, I actually have a thing in UPS where they're supposed to have my door code, but that system is broken, which is a whole different story we won't get into here. Then they're supposed to leave a notice, which says, like, you know, the thing that says, like, oh, we missed you. You can get your package here, blah, 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 right? They didn't yeah. put up the notice. As a side effect, they have not put up the notice the five previous times they received UPS packages. Um, and a UPS person did recently confirm to me that they're actually supposed to always do that. So my the one or more drivers here just doesn't do their job. Um, and Horrible so, people. So then it got sent to a place where I was supposed to pick it up, but of course I couldn't know I was supposed to pick it up because the tracking was broken and I had no notice. So then they sent it back to Brooklyn. <laughs> they didn't tell they didn't tell okay, you about this. But caveat here, yeah. all of that we are taking like when I called UPS, that's what she told me. But maybe what actually happened is that she never sent it out and she fabricated an entire who, story who about knows? how it went out and came back. Because the knows? tracking never picked up. And wouldn't they have had to have scanned it at least a couple times? Who All I'm knows? saying is maybe it never left maybe. New York City the first time. Anyway, and right. So it went out to Brooklyn. Happened. And that's why they were fine with, with me not paying twice at all because it never actually went the first But they weren't initially. Initially, they told you you would have to pay to ship again, right? But I didn't have to say very much to yeah. get them to send it. And if what they said had happened, it actually happened, right? Yeah. The way they thought it happened, then they should be more up in arms about it. That's all I'm saying. Well, it's so they their were fault. probably, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, like, if they actually did take it to you and then take it back again, regardless of their screw-ups, that cost would have been on them, right? Right. But, For having but, done all that. So they wouldn't be that quick to back down. I, 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 I guess I would also say, like, if I buy chicken from the grocery store and then I'm terrible cook and I burn it, I don't go back to the grocery store where it's like, my chicken was burnt. No, like, no, that's no. on this me. Is, this is not a good analogy. The yeah. better analogy would be if, um, if the uh, grocery store's refrigerator went out, right? Yeah. And so the chicken went bad. That's maybe that's not the right analogy. No, you're now just the grocery not, store. So the grocery store screws up, right? Um, but it loses money, right? Uh-huh. And so its best advantage business wise 
would be to try to argue for to not to to recoup that regardless of what the ethics are is what i'm saying perhaps right? except that one of the out again putting aside the whole thing where like they shouldn't actually all be profit driven there's the part where then they screw it up and then you know i say joanna never send me ups packages again and so they lose some future business because they're screw-ups yes but that part they can't know yeah well, I mean, it is actually a fairly common knowledge that if you have really terrible customer service and treat your customers really badly, they're more likely to look somewhere else for service. It's, except that doesn't seem to happen with UPS very often, does it? Yeah. Well, that's, well, that's because UPS is in many um, markets essentially a monopoly. Uh, so people are forced to work with them. But in this particular case, that's not. Anyway. Um, uh, should this has I... been a great uh, little uh, Anyway, so the... she finally, I finally, I mean, it involves me walking, you know, Okay. across halfway across sacramento to pick up the package <laughs> but i finally get the package after they failed to deliver it to me the second time in a row um yeah, those assholes but i finally got the game but of course it's a board game so i have to have someone to play it with and my normal grain group is not a good fit for that so then i tried to get a friend of mine to play it and she had life stuff happen multiple times in a row and so she couldn't do it uh yeah. so i still have not played illamont which is my jp it's a good game, though. i believe you um, so I, I may actually play it with my mom tomorrow. We'll see how she feels. But Lamont is a game um, that was originally envisioned um, like on album covers of the Decemberists. And then the Decemberists co- like cooperated with the guy who did uh, Gloom yep. to design this game. Yep. And I was going to say, well, we talked about, we gave the brief synopsis last time, and we're going to talk about in detail next episode when you and I play it and record it. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. So it's not, we don't, we don't want to repeat it. ourselves too much. Um, yeah. Repeating ourselves is terrible. I would just, hate to repeat myself. Oh my God. <laughs> no more repeating whatsoever. <laughs> you done? No, I'm going to repeat myself some more. Yeah, I'm done. Okay. I'm gonna pet my dog to to release my anger. Um, <laughs> then, um, so we would now. Then now we'd go to our mailbag and comment section. Except no one wrote us anything because we're not popular. Because we're not popular. We're not popular. So that's not happening. We're definitely not popular. Shut up. Uh, which obviously. I'm sorry, I just I feel compelled fine. to repeat myself. Now. It's fine. Yeah, you know, I it's you know I do the best I can with the host I got. So, uh, at least for the first six months. Yeah. Oh my God. And so then um, we have JP. Oh, hold on a second. Buffy wants to get up. Okay. Okay. Fine. Go you wanna, for it. You want to? You know what? Fine. You want to go poop in my apartment? Go. Go for it. Okay. She's gonna go poop in my apartment somewhere now. But we. I have a podcast to do, so I can deal with that. <laughs> Plus, I'm told she's on a medication that makes her poops like really firm. So her pooping in apartment. <laughs> And as my dad has explained to me, it's actually much better for her to poop than to pee, right? Because pee, you got to clean that up. That could be in a carpet, whatever. Poop, it's almost like it was never there once you picked it up. Yeah, it's almost like that. It's almost like that. Um, almost like that. Almost like that. Almost so like that. Stop it. Stop. <laughs> Do we, we had a we had a little discussion before this podcast, Joanna. Ah. <laughs> um. <laughs> So instead of talking about Illamont, because I can't, because we'll talk about it next time. <laughs> Which we haven't done at all this episode. Then I will be talking about the Advent Calendar Guessing Game instead. Okay. The Advent Calendar Guessing Game is, in fact, pretty cool. I'm glad you think so. You're probably the only other person who thinks so. That's no actually way. not true. Uh, yeah, tons we'll of get, people do. 
well, I, let's not go too far here. But um, Tons of nerds do. Yeah. So what the advent calendar guessing game is, so there's a, a website, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, which is one of maybe the only website that I consistently read every single day. Um, and they are a PC gaming website. They were started as a group of uh, sort of freelance games writers coming together to start a PC gaming blog in the dark ages of PC gaming circa 2007 when everyone was like pc gaming is dead and you know everything's consoles now and there were no there was not not a single dedicated pc gaming website um and they you know really pushed that forward and they've always had a very sort of independent streak where they they're more holistic they don't believe in scoring games they're very much into you know the subjective personal experience of playing games but also you know into critical analysis um and celebrating all sorts of games not just the big blockbusters so um Every year, they do an advent calendar. So most uh, sites will do an end-of-the-year awards for, and they'll normally do it in categories, right? So they'll say, like, best RPG, best action game, best PlayStation 4 game, whatever, right? But as part of their sort of holistic thing, they just make a list of the 24 best games of the year, and they're not ordered except for the final game. So it's basically like they have a game of the year, and then there's 20 other games they thought were really great. And so six years ago, which would be, help me, if if the year 2018, was that 2012. Be 20, I only 13. know this because a six-year-old no. tried to. Nice try. You said six years old. So if, if this is, uh, let me put it oh this my way. God. No. So I just ran the sixth annual advent calendar guessing game, right? In 2018. Uh, so so it'd actually be 2013. Yep. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, but you said six years ago. I did That's say six years say. ago. I did say That's six years you. ago. Yeah. I was you know. excited because I just did this math problem earlier. Today. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, one. I know that and you then... have a have a problem where you often take language literally and don't consider the context. Oh my god! Shut language. up! I hate you. <laughs> You're not funny. That's not funny. So, the, for those I'm missing the in joke, the in joke here is that Joanna often takes language very literally. No, the in <laughs> joke is that Dylan is the most literal person you will ever meet, and it drives me bonkers Dear all of the time. That's the in joke. Okay. And it's not a joke. Wait, I'm sorry. It's it drives just you. Annoying. It drives you bonkers all of the time. Literally, literally, you're being driven shut crazy. Up. <laughs> shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Um. <laughs> so uh, I started a thing where you know, just on the forums they have attached to the website, people would gather, and I'd say, "Let's guess what the 24 games are going to be." And I would say, you know, I'll buy you 20 bucks in Steam games if um if you do this. Oh my God, there's gonna be Buffy's claws are gonna be tip tapping all over this recording. <laughs> You're the one who decided to do a podcast with the dog in the house. I, you know, my parents wanted to a little bit of a dog break. I think so. I was that trying to sense. be a good host, um, and she was fine on the couch until you came up. And then basically, as soon as you got here, she woke up and was like, bah, 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 bah. Um, "She's convinced that there's food in my apartment. There's at least smells." So she did. will just like scavenge for hours. Um, no, stop licking my floor. Uh, this is going to be a great podcast. This is going to be excellent. Nice. I think we should continue for I sure. I know. It will. It will. It's fine. I'm just, I'm just like, don't eat my GameCube controllers, Buffy. Um, but yes, as dogs get older, they t- typically become more food-driven, and that's definitely true of Buffy. Yeah. So she's like, is it worth it to spend three hours scouring this house in the hopes that I find like one Cheerio? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, might, he, she might find the Cheerio. Oh, she, she did yesterday. I even pointed her to it. I was like, look, Buffy, look on the floor it's a cheerio oh god um and i haven't even had cheerios in like quite what? a while why are you <laughs> okay 
Uh, Wonderful. So, Wonderful. so the advent calendar guessing game. So I think, I mean, pr- the first year it was probably like six people participated. And I won my own competition. So it was yeah. like, you know, kind of corny. But I started a thing. And so I did it in 2014. And more people participated. And someone else won it. Someone named Spoken Starfish was his handle. And, uh, and over time they've changed the system. One year they experimented with category awards. And then they didn't do that. They used to have a system where everyone God, this is getting too far into weeds. No one cares what the other system is. But they've changed the award systems over time in ways that has implications on how we guess. But primarily, basically everyone makes a has a certain amount of points or makes a list of games they like and then they combine the staff's list. And I think when we started this game, there were maybe like six staff members. And now there's twelve, and this year they hired three people all towards the end of the year. Actually they hired four new people and three of them towards the end of the year. So it made the game really hard to guess. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, my God. Okay, but <laughs> she's, like, buried in the wires behind my computer now. This is going to end. <laughs> Give me a second. This is going to end well. Buffy, get out of there. No, Buffy, get out. <laughs> For the listeners at home. <laughs> Deal with this girl. God, you guys. <laughs> so what, what was, what'd you say, Joanna? Uh, I was just trying to describe to them what it's like watching you chase your dog around, but I can't. <laughs> Why is this so funny? You just don't know what it looks like. Hey, Buffy, there's, there's, no, like... there's no food there. No, stop it. Oh, my God. Lord have mercy. That's fine. I'll, okay. I'm going to let her do this for the while, and if she if she can't show her bill, I'm going to stick around. <laughs> what I was trying to say is, in case the listeners at home were wondering what the pause was about, it was you chasing your dog around the living room, and it was really funny to watch okay. from this Well, end. I mean, we probably will just edit this out, but who knows? I anyway. know. I know we will. We have to. Well, but, um, um, so... Uh, oh, God. Okay. So, yeah. So, 2015, more people participate. I win. Uh, 2016, you know, about, about steady participation, Spoken Starfish wins. 2017, you know, good good run, uh, but me and another person who goes by Mini Matt um, wins, and he tells me to donate his prize to charity, put a big sweetie. Um, and, and, uh, and at the end of last year, Graham, who is the editor-in-chief of Rock, Paper, Shotgun for a number of years, swings by and says, hey, I just want everyone to know you know, me and a lot of the other staff read this competition. We think it's super great. You know, I think it's really fun watching you guys guess and, you know, seeing your thoughts. Let me give you some insights and how this all works and, you know, what, what you almost got right and stuff like that. So that was really cool. That, that was very cool. rewarding. Um, and so this year I, I thought I'd email um, – Rap Paper Shotgun now has – they have a – for a few years they've had a subscription service, you know, so if you want to pay them and not do these ad clicks, right, for something more sustainable – um, so I said, hey, hey, Graham, would you be willing to put up a couple prizes, like uh, a 12-month subscription and then maybe a six-month subscription for the second place for the Advent Calendar Guessing Game? And he said, yes, I would love to do that. And uh, in addition, we can make a front-page post about it. So um, they did on the front page of, you know, this major PC gaming website was like, here's this really cool competition. You guys should, could participate. He also admits that he mostly hired the, all the new staff just to make our guessing harder. Um, and then there's at least one other member where someone's like, Here's one of my favorite games of the year. Consider this a hint for the advent calendar guessing game. You know, they link it. Um, yeah. So we uh, did that again this year. There were a lot of 
uh, sort of side picks, including one we may play in the future, Jastronauts. Um, the game of the year came out today, and it was Return of the Obra Dinn, which is something we may play for uh, Media Club at some point. I'm really looking forward to it. Do you, are you familiar with that at all? No, tell me about okay, it. Okay, well we'll, well, we'll we'll do that in a future episode, because I'm already rambling enough about this. Um, maybe when I, when I sign it. Um, and uh, it came down to two people, one of whom was Spoken Starfish, and it looks like he was going to run away with the competition again. But the, the first tiebreaker is what is the game of the year. I'm the only person who have ever gotten this tiebreaker, and this guy got it this year. He actually said Return of the Oberdin will be game of the year, which not many people wow. picked. And so this this new person who he said previously, he's never made it in time. He's always kind of gotten around to it after the deadline to get his entries in. But this year he did it, and he got you know 15 out of 24, I think, maybe even 16 out of 24, which is really high numbers uh, nice. for this game. And yeah, so he won. It was really nice. And that's just like, you know, as I've said on this podcast, you know, it's been a like many people i often feel like you know there's kind of the kind of nice and warm and warm and fuzzy things are few and far between in the world right now so i kind of have that and it's it's such a lovely group of people that's all all right oh do you, sorry so you're supposed to um we're supposed to talk about the uh film crit hulk acting articles now this would actually probably are, be a, yeah i was just i'm gonna do loud typing yeah loud typing while i pull up the uh articles so um do you want to give do you want to do a synopsis of what these are or do you want me to say why i signed it to you that i probably should do that so it's not just arbitrary so basically joanne and i you know as long as we've known each other we have watched films together sometimes we talk about films uh but neither of us have any filmmaking background whatsoever you know i've taken a few film classes joanne is good friends with <laughs> someone who's taken film classes you know but that's about as far as that goes mm-hmm. um uh, and so one thing that sometimes happens is often when we're discussing something, we don't have the language to talk about it. And so one thing I've often known is, you know, reading, being by no, in no way, shape or form an expert about acting, but, you know, having read a little bit, including what, at least one of these articles in the past. And you, Joanna's often just like, you know, so-and-so is a crap actor. So-and-so is a great actor. And it, and it doesn't really, we never really go beyond that. And I kind of like, well, why are they a bad actor? And you, then you're just like, because they, they act badly. <laughs> and I'm like, what does that mean? You know, so I thought, th- I, and I thought this, but as this article points out, this is not like a, this is not a Joanna doesn't know how to talk about acting thing. This is a nobody knows how to talk about acting thing. Um, right. Or at least this is argument. Obviously, you can let me know what you thought of that. So yep. the first article was written in 2011 by film crit Hulk, who um, you know writes a lot of good film criticisms, and it's just called Acting 101. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell, tell me, what, give us a summary of Acting 101, and then tell us what you thought about it and what your takeaways were. Um, so I actually read a bunch of, I ended up reading a bunch of articles um, by uh, film crit Hulk, that's hard to say, film crit Hulk, on acting, um, and I have a bunch of notes, Interesting. but I can't tell you exactly where each one came from so um, the the if, if as a reminder the first one is about kind of runs down all these misconceptions we have about acting and about the process of it and then also in the second half talks about sort of the three schools of acting right no i know um but i'm saying that like after that i went and read a bunch of junk so like you know there so you went above and beyond <laughs> film crit hulk i've got to get used to saying that wrote a bunch of stuff in a bunch of newspaper, like a bunch of publications in addition about like what acting is and how it works. Yeah. And it, but, but exactly the same theme. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I actually, I never, 
I never read those. I know he has a he has a book on screenwriting, I believe. They're yeah, they're yeah. very similar. They're mm-hmm. I feel like they're just adapted for a, like, a mass size audience reasons. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Because right, this like, first yeah. and I I had the things the other article I signed you was about Keanu Reeves and what we consider good acting. And while it's not like one hundred percent a retread, there's some interesting insights that are of course specific to him. Um, overall, it is boiling down because you know his his thing historically is that he had his own blog or occasionally this other place and he wrote really long form writing um i think there's a piece on the force awakens which is like twenty thousand words and it's amazing it is the best analysis of the force awakens that will ever be done yes and i and well you say nice i bugged you to read it about half a dozen times before i gave up um when you were back when you were yeah back when you were and you know you had your whole i don't like film crit hulk blah 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 thing but it's really good because the caps lock yeah because i don't we're not gonna talk about that here but uh you also i'm assuming for this you would just use convert case and can figure it out that way right yeah. Um, uh, there, I did see a very funny comment where on the first blog post he wrote, where he didn't write in all caps, someone in the comment section was like, "I this is completely unreadable." There's it uses both uppercase and lowercase letters. Like, what the, what is this? This is terrible. Huh. And so someone was like, "Well, you know, you can just use convertcase.net to make it all caps." Now there's actually a button on MS Word that does it, or maybe yeah. there's always been, but I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, yeah, there has always been. But um, anyway, so uh, sorry, run run us. So you don't just what are your notes? What what did yeah, you say? Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that. So I feel like um, there are a few main themes, and one of the things that comes out a lot is, um, you know, when you talk about why the big stars get cast, right, or why somebody gets cast in a movie, some of it has to do with um, the way they look, and it isn't like you would you would think like oh you mean how pretty they are or how attractive they are or whatever, but it's really um, has to do with the physicality of the way they look when they engage. Mm -hmm. So it's not so much about how, you know, conventionally attractive or like a mom or like a dad you look, although obviously that has something to do with it. Obviously that helps, especially in Marvel movies. (laughs) Oh my God. Oh my god. But but um but but it has to do also with like, you know, is this somebody whose like whose eyes would catch your attention? Like mm-hmm. are they good at a, you know, at appearing like they are very engaged when they are very like and then there are people and actors who even when they are very engaged don't necessarily look that way. So there is the mere appearance of being very engaged. Mhm. Um, keep going so there's that and then also um, there's a question about another big theme that comes up is um, basically good or bad acting according to film crit Hulk comes down to believability Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not about whether the acting is like top notch or terrible it's not about um uh, it's not just about the actor, him or herself, because it has to do with all of the elements together. Right. But at the end of the day, the question is, is the actor believable? As as the um, character, do you... As under- the character. Right. And, and if, if you and- don't believe it, it's bad acting. Um, if you do believe it... Um, uh, or, it might, or it might be better said that if you don't believe it, it's perceived as bad acting. Because as yeah. you know, it's like, if the, if the script is just atrocious... There is nothing the greatest actor in the world can do to make that character believe, to make that performance believable, because the the very character is not believable. 
right? Yeah, if but their motivations I think most people know, like, atrocious writing when they come across it. Maybe not, yeah, I, not I agree. great writing, but atrocious right. writing we know, right? Yes, yes. Like the stupid ranch TV show that Neil the, has been watching. The um, stupid ranch TV show. The okay. one that stars Ashton Kutcher and the guy that got Me Too'd. I have never, I know nothing about this. Oh my this. god, I don't even know what it's called, other than that it has ranch in the title, and it's terrible. Oh my god, it's Like so ranch bad. dressing? Yeah, except it's like a farming, like a ranch with horse, with cows. Whatever, whatever is on ranches. Oh, oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, fine. Are, fine. Are, you, are you a little confused as to the difference between a horse and a cow? Uh, no. I'm a little bit confused as to what belongs on a ranch. Okay, okay. I, well, I know what ranch belongs on. Does that help <laughs> nothing ever you know um, you hate ranch actually i like ranch doritos okay <laughs> i basically just said that to get you to make that noise I know, that was pretty I great you okay God. dylan hold on a second i know i'm i know i'm taking care of it <laughs> oh my god this is just <laughs> pour the viewers out <laughs> Dylan is chasing his dog around the apartment again. Awesome. What'd you say? Nothing. I said nothing at all. What'd you say? I, you know, if you were here and paying attention to me, then you would have known what Joanna, I said. you realize that this is recorded and I will hear what you say. I know. Oh. I'm aware. I said for the, I told the viewers at home what was going on okay. because they need to know. Okay, yeah, Buffy. Buffy just she just like wants to get into every. It's like let me find all the plastic bags that are near the microphone that I can like step on and crinkle, and <laughs> you know let me try to like get in Dylan's feet. And yeah, I love I love Buffy. Um, oh yeah, I so, love Buffy too, even though she bit me in the face. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we've we've it's that's one of those things that we've all wanted to do. Oh, for fuck's sake! Okay, all right. Um, Shall we? Um, Oh, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. So, you talked about the core idea of believability, and you buy that, right? Like, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But then, what, what do you think about the, the – uh, there's one thing where he said that often we confuse good acting with most acting. Um, do you remember yeah. this idea? Yeah. No, I – like, um, just because we adjust, right, to some kind of normative standard, but I think – that that kind of confusion really only exists in the presence of most acting and not in the presence of good acting. Like when, um, did you ever see Lady Bird? I did. Yes. So when I think of like the mom, the actress yes. in that yes. right movie, right? Like that, like I might see a different movie and be like, Oh, the acting was good in that movie when it was really only okay. Yeah. But when I see outstanding acting, I know it. Or basically anything Laura Dern is in. Oh, right? oh so sorry. Like, so you were you were you were giving that as an example of good acting. Yeah. Oh, I thought you were saying that was an example of overacting. No. Okay. So that would that was an example of, in my opinion, a different different. So this is why I'm bringing it up a different level of acting, right? So the reason why it appeared like she was overacting is because there. are a lot of acting in that movie was just regular, right? Like it is like most acting and that there's a conflict there. Um, so, oh, oh, you're saying that, that she was, was sort of hyper. I I'm still very, can you, can you put into words what exactly you're saying is good and not good in that movie? Yeah. Yeah. What I'm saying is that most acting only appears 
good acting only appears like most acting when there is when there's no level difference between acting. So that made no sense. Let me try again. Yeah. Well, can we tell the viewers what we mean by most acting? Uh, this is I, mean, I guess we mean that acting that is very perform that that draws attention to itself as acting as look at me you know look at me disappear into this role with my elaborate makeup and my accents and my you know very overt emotions it's not necessarily melodramatic but there's some overlap right so so the the actual line i think is um it creates a line of thinking that causes everyone to be drawn to showy roles they're usually important or serious in award season best acting often becomes most acting um so so this is you know daniel day lewis in my left foot you know that like that sort uh, of thing. right right and so but but um what i guess what i'm saying is i should have started with um film crit hulk man that is so hard to say film crit hulk's point which is just that um there is a tendency to relate the, the acting with the role basically right yeah. so like if it's an important serious role on an important serious point yeah um that that is therefore better acting right, right? so and, like, and, and whereas we'll never go like oh my god the cashier in that scene where they bought something at the store was so good right exactly. when actually when actually there's a lot of work going into being a believable cashier in a store yeah and i which is true but then i also think another thing that's true is that if there's two different levels of acting in the same movie um and th- the when you say levels the, you mean like intensity um, no, I mean, like, if you took somebody, like, yeah, names are just bad. Mara Rooney, is that the name of the girl who, the, there is a actress in House of Cards who... I've never um, seen House of Cards, so I, I cannot know, answer. I know, but she's famous. Her last name is Rooney, or, no, it isn't. It really isn't. Her sister's name is Katie Mara. Her name is Katie Mara. Okay. Katie Mara is an actress who, in my opinion, is not believable on screen. Uh, to the point where I said to Emma, I was like, it's really weird because, you know, all the things she says, I think are reasonable things to say in that scene, but for some reason they don't work for me. And then Emma was like, yeah, it's because she can't act. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I never thought about it because, you know, I'm just watching the scene yeah. or whatever. But so... You take somebody like her and you put her in a scene with somebody who, you know, can act, right, or uh, can act really well, uh, is a good actor. Mm-hmm. And the difference in the levels in um, on screen may produce an effect for the viewer that isn't mm-hmm. necessarily di- like a direct, like this person's good and this person's bad, right? right. Like, so what you're looking at if there are ever different levels of acting skill on the screen may not be what you think you're looking at. Yeah. And I think one, one argument he makes is that essentially the standard for, you know, being in a Hollywood movie is so incredibly high that even the people that we look at and notice say, eh, they can't act. They actually yeah. can act way, way better than, you know, than we could. They're just bad relative. It's kind of like saying that, you know, when we watch major league baseball and we say that player is not very good. I mean, 99% of the time, that's completely untrue because if they weren't good, they would not be on the Major League Baseball team. They're just not good relative to some of the other Major League Baseball players. Yeah. You know, and it's just, I guess it's just worth keeping in mind because people, I mean, you know how we are, especially in the age of the internet, we want to tear everything down to, you know, and so it's really easy to be like, oh my God, so-and-so is the worst thing ever and they have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. 
but um but yeah but i think this also ties into the article on keanu reeves where he's kind of saying that by by his nature he is like not a showy actor at all he's like a, a very reliably unshowy actor yep and so then you know that develops a reputation for bad acting both because he's not performative in the way that we think of and also because you know he sometimes you know he doesn't have an enormous range so sometimes he's you know cast in things where he doesn't really fit yeah exactly um, but but he also talks about how like we often privilege range in actors but that, that brings acting to like a weird metagame of like how many different boxes can you check in your acting which is not you know gets away from the from the sort of standard of are you believable in this film right now right so that and that is that actually comes up a lot in um in the guardian piece uh and uh basically um it, it doesn't have to do with like there's this notion of craft right and all the things so if you talk about the craft of something you 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 would list out all of the skills for it right and range is one um but uh um but it's also to do with you know like so you, you talk about craft and range and you talk about like you know how many different voices can you do and like you know but there's um, also like what what yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, the one thing he talks about, there's like there's things like that where we can see. We can say, like, oh, you do good accents. Oh, you, you do crappy accents. But then there's right. other and things which are like, how how generous is this person on set? How much how well do they behave with the other actors? How much can they sort of really accommodate you when you need to change a scene on a dime versus being like, I need to go back in my trailer for a day and prepare? You know, there's things like that, which, yeah. you, which you as the viewer don't see, right? Because it all happens off camera. Right. Well, and then I think... I think also just that it doesn't, like you were saying earlier, it just doesn't matter as much to, right? Like, so there's sort of a, like, um, a stigma about being pigeonholed, right? Mm -hmm. And actors don't want to do that necessarily, like being pigeonholed into one kind of role. Mm -hmm. But it's actually, there's actually, you know, especially for most acting, which is paid work and not like crazy stardom, right? Right. There's nothing wrong with having a reliable part that you're very good at playing. Correct. You know, that you can do. And that's what most well, characters are. Like they're usually villains or they're usually, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, right, but one exactly. thing I was going to say that this is the follow up that I think that stuff that does ma matter, we can perceive it. Like when we have those actors who make things better on set, we indirectly perceive it because it results in a better film. And then we say, oh, that's a good film. We just don't know why it's a good film. We don't see those things behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a, oh, it's nice to work with them sort of thing. It actually results in a better product, uh, so to yeah. speak, but we just, there's no way to know it. And that's what he talks about. It's a lot like editing, right? But the difference is that with editing, everyone knows they don't know editing, right? When people, when casual film viewers sit down and watch the Oscars and, and they see an award for best editing, they're all like, what the hell does that mean? Right? How do you, you can't watch a film and see that it's really well edited. It doesn't work that way. That's a silly category. <laughs> Um, any other thoughts? Was this a rewarding read for you? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I think that, you know, when I talk about bad acting and good acting, what I mean is acting where it seems to me like somebody is pretending and acting where it doesn't. So that is about believability, yes. really, at the end of the day. Um, so it's something that's badly acted. Uh, for example, I recently saw... Um, if Beale Street could talk and uh, I noticed that the protagonist 
was very good at conveying emotion physically, but very bad at being believable when she actually spoke. Like, her dialogue was mm. not believable. So she had really um, good, good physical mannerisms, but yeah. And how much right. was that through the script, and how much was that how she said things, you think? Uh, well, the rest of the cast didn't have that issue, um, So, which makes me think, like, you can't always tell, but but it made me think, watching that film, that it, it was the actress. Um, but I will add also that there that particular film happens to have a lot of voiceover, and one of the and I wonder, I, I obviously it's a way to know, but I wonder if this was a compensating measure by the director, if the actress, because the, the voiceovers worked well because it was a voiceover and then it was her in yeah. her physicality, right? And she, yeah. she wasn't speaking. And I don't know if that was to address the issue or if that just happened to also be part of the film, but it worked, you know, better, so this gets into oh. the thing where like you never really know because it could also be that that actor the director doesn't know how to direct that actor you know yeah. they're good at directing exactly. some of the other actors and yeah so it's just invisible so i i mean one of the things i like about i mean film film crit hulk is not perfect he has his blind spots but but he one thing he brings to almost everything he writes is he has a very unusual com- combination of expertise and humility yeah. and i think one of the takeaways of almost everything he writes is that we sort of need to be more humble about how we preach art because we don't know as much as we think we do yeah um, yeah exactly which i like um i mean except for me obviously i know is more than i think i do yeah but uh so our next phase is jp assignments um so joanna do you know what i'm going to assign you i have no she idea. has no idea it's a big surprise um my assignment for you is that you listen once through actively listen to all five of my annual playlists you only have five i only have five i started when i was 26 okay deal so to for the, the audiences know what i'm talking about um starting when i was 26 i made a playlist that was for the year of my life and it's not intended to be you know a narrative rendition of the year of my life but you know some themes and preferences creep in of course uh, and it's not music from that year it's just music that I listened to and embraced that year and had some connections yeah. and some things. Um, and I post them on my on my website. And so uh, your assignment is to, you know, actively listen to all of them. You know, each one, they're generally a little bit under an hour. So I think the total would take you about four to four and a half hours. So I don't know what that, that is in t- for, for JP, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, then, uh, and then just come back and say say what you thought. You can And it can be like, you know, your taste in music is terrible, but also like I like these songs or I discovered this thing that I, I didn't know or this was an interesting insight about you or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, so I thought that would be cool. And uh, you can listen to them on, on my website, but off the podcast, you can also try to figure out a way to package them that you can listen to locally or something. So. Yeah. Great. Okay, cool. So uh, next is right. Joanna's song break. song break. So do I have to actually say what song it is? Yes, please. Okay. please the name tell us. of the song is. <laughs> hold on. <laughs> I can't remember. Joanna it. can't remember the name I of the song that she it. picked for the podcast. No, it's not it is, New York Fairy Tale by the Pogues. Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. Okay. okay. Yes, that is it. It's called Fairy Tale of New York by the Pogues. Okay. Um, the, the, okay. And we will listen and to it. And we will now. listen to okay, it now. So, all right.
I have now listened to the song. Why did you pick that song? Um, because uh, I heard it recently and I liked it. Is the very short version. Also, it is thematically appropriate for the season. That's why. Is what you're saying is that it's your Christmas song? Yeah, but you're you know, you're a bad Jew. An interesting one, not a, a bad one. That's all. Okay, let me let me. Uh... And also, uh, listeners, if you have a song that you want to request at some point that we put in an episode. Uh, just remember to email a possibility of opinions at gmail.com and you can have your own song break. Unless we both determine your song is terrible. But then maybe we'll play it and talk about how your song is terrible. So, okay. So, going on, we will be talking about the Red Strings Club uh, with a guest. Uh, we've actually already recorded this segment. Yes. And I realized that when we recorded this segment, we forgot to introduce this person. We they really, no, we did. We did eventually. No, we didn't. No, we talked about the we interviewed. We, we were just like, no, we didn't. We didn't. I, I, we didn't. No, I just I just listened. I edited the whole thing. I mean, we were like, this is Cade, but we didn't say like who is this person or how we know him or any of that. Yeah. Um. So uh, we I will say that now. Um. We're talking about a game called the Red Strings Club, and we had uh, as a guest speaker because he had played the game and had thoughts about it. Uh, Christopher Cade Mosley. He is a uh, human rights lawyer who works uh, from Texas, works out of Japan, so we had to figure out the time zones, uh, is uh, something of an expert in philosophy, linguistics, uh, game modding, just really sort of a, a, a charming and brilliant savant, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure he's... he'll blush when he hears this. But, but he's just fantastic. Um, he's one fantastic. Of the, one of the things that makes him excellent is that um, you know, he's he's always down for uh, a blending of the intellectual and the common. So one of the things mm-hmm. I like about him is I'll make a Facebook post about some random thing that happened, and his comments will always address that thing, but also, you know, be talking about it in, like, an existential and interesting way, which is something I'm really into. And there aren't a lot yes. of people like that in the world. So no, it's most nice people – I mean, most people – Flat, flat out don't have the capability to do it. And of those that do, most don't have the inclination to, you know, post it in a comment on Facebook. Exactly. So they'll, be like, and, they'll be like, oh, this is not a serious enough so platform for this. consistently, too. You know, yeah. it's not like every once in a while he feels like it's just like he's very reliable in that way. So it's good. Good people. And you should listen to the segment, which you're about to do yes. anyways. Yep. Okay. So. Magical editing power. The segment goes in here. Bloop are now talking about the red strings club which is by uh, a developer called deconstruct team published by devolver digital who we may talk about a little bit and uh who wants who wants to give a description of of what this game is like i think you should oh why what every time i ask that question it always ends up being mean okay so uh the red strings club is a shortish um it's a cyberpunk bartending game uh, making it the second cyberpunk bartending game released <laughs> within yeah. like a one year period, because um, there's another one called um, Valhalla. Valhalla, yeah, which which uh, I enjoy a lot, but it's is fairly different from this one, um, and it it's very dense with ideas, uh, but the short explanation is that you uh, swap between two characters who um, are working to stop a sort of corporate plot to 
modify human behavior to make us all um, be better and happier. Um, so sort of bad, maybe not, depending on your perspective. Um, and a lot of it revolves around uh, interviewing people and asking questions. And modifying and their breaks. behavior when you can. And modifying your behavior. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. There's, there's layers. Cool. Um, so uh, I guess I would just say first first thoughts on how, how you respond to this game. Uh, well, I would just say the the one thing mechanically what defined it for me is it's uh, I don't know if this is a kind of genre, but it's a kind of uh, cobble of mini games. Mm -hmm. And that's like kind of the first thing you get over with how you're actually playing it mechanically is uh, you have to like mini games. But I thought uh, some certain games can integrate mini games into their larger game better than others. And I thought this was on the better end. But that's still something you have to get over. Like it's a lot of mini games, like the bartending, and mm -hmm. the um, you know behavioral mod, the pottery. <laughs> yeah, right. The pottery. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I was looking at um, comments about the game, and people were like, "Oh, the whole first hour is pottery," and I was like, "It's just how it goes, man." You know, like I feel yeah. like there's a certain amount of leniency that you give when you play like a game that's definitely outside of the norm. You know, and my thought was like, "Okay, listen." you don't complain about grinding on, you know, all of these other games, but then you're going to complain about pottery on this one, right? It's a little... Anyways, I thought it was cute. Um, mostly what I thought about that game is that it was uh, a sweet game. Um, a very, obviously, uh, a, like a like a thoughtful homage. Homage? How do you say that word? Homage. No, that's right. Homage. Homage. Yeah, homage, yeah. Homage. Mm -hmm. Homage. Homage um, to a lot of different ideas, so... Yeah. Um, so I liked it. I mean, I did think it was a little bit slow in some parts, but for me, I kind of prefer that in a game to having to do something quickly. Uh, so that mm -hmm. worked out for me. And you should really talk yeah. about the art style it was very stylized and very not. It's retro, but it's very nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's, you know, what's what's known as pixel art these days. And pixel art has been through like a lot of waves in the past year where there's a point at which it was sort of trendy and then people attacked it because it was trendy. But it's just always there. But what pixel art is able to do is that you are able to create things that are beautiful and very distinctive on with one person. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like a very low budget art style, but that you can still create like great things about it. Cause it's all about like everything is just so. And it, what's funny is there's actually um, a Twitter conversation. I, I, I actually poked into to, to, for a reason we might get into later i poked into the, the the lead writers and designers twitter and he was saying that apparently he lives with with the two other people on his team the person who does the art and the person who does the music and they were both you know feeling really put upon and like they're they're not talented enough basically and i told him which was true i just told somebody like two days ago i love pixel art but the really the only reason i said that was that i had been reminded by that fact because of this game yeah yeah, yeah. oh what struck me was uh I don't, if it is the one maker, uh, what struck me is like at the genesis of the game is someone was looking mm -hmm. at a dialogue tree and thinking, how do I gamify this? And that turned mm -hmm. into this game, like because a, a lot of it looked like creative ways to try to gamify a, a dialogue tree. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's accurate. I think there's a lot of like the traditional visual novel has, depending on your perspective, sort of a problem. Like there are people who really like visual novels and play nothing but them and that's great but for a lot of people even the ones that are really well written there's something that's sort of grating about just 
clicking endlessly through dialogue boxes and doing nothing, right? There's a point at which most people would prefer to read a literal novel than to do that because it just goes, especially if you're a fast reader, it just goes really slowly. And so I think that's where, like, that's where the mini games in this game come in. And, you know, optimistically, then you can do things like reinforce themes and make it more interesting, but it's also just a way to break up clicking through dialogue boxes. Yeah, I think also the big issue with dialogue um, is that, there you end up often in a situation where even if it can go a number of different ways that cause the game to do a number of different things, it feels it really, which is also true probably of actual conversation, but you're not as aware of it. Right. But you can actually see the mechanics of a conversation in a way that's almost rote. Um, And so it's very hard to, it's very hard to create dialogue trees that, um, still that 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 don't break immersion um because you can actually see the design right right when you're looking yeah. at it so for that reason i think also um the choice to use mini games or the choice to to just add another level of game instead is is or you know in, in addition to sometimes is uh, one way of getting around that. But it wasn't just mini games by themselves. It was a what I also thought added to it was is a kind of armchair psychology part to it. So you're engaging with them at the not exactly human level, but at the level you're trying to read their psychology. So with the quiz, uh, having a car's quizzes out of the dialogue is a way to die is a way to gamify the dialogue tree because you're trying to read out and you're trying to pull out information from them. And I just want to give a little background for, since, you know, people may not have played this game. So what what you're doing for most of the game is you're this guy who's a bartender who has this possibly mystic power, which is that he can read people and then pour drinks to sort of push them to a certain, certain mood or psychological state. So there's, that's where sort of the drink mixing game comes in. And, but then you, you're interviewing them. You're basically trying to get information out of them and they'll give you different information, different responses based on what state they're in yeah i felt like i was telling my friends i felt like i was like deanna troy you know um <laughs> yeah. from Star but, Trek. but actually good at yeah, your job actually good at my job right yeah um yeah it's it's a cool idea um and i think that it works really well for uh for people who uh, you know think that story is one of the most important parts of games right it's obviously not ideal for people who really like combat or you know turn-based strategy um but yeah uh and it's it is really gorgeous one thing that i noticed about it is that even though the people are pixels the backgrounds you know uh are often i don't mean i mean i don't know much about art but they tend to to be more painted more detail yeah more yeah Yeah. oh yeah. yeah yeah Yeah, I think I think that has to do with um, the fact that the backgrounds are static and the people are animated. So it it it's a lot less work when you make the people more pixelated. But then it also can you know then just a stylistic decision emerges from that. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I thought was cool you talked about like the overt mechanics of dialogue trees, and um, I don't know like how early you notice this in your like playthroughs. From the get go, you can basically click the literal red strings, which basically just shows you a, like a linear branch of all the important decisions in the game. And in the future, you won't know what those decisions are because that will be spoilers. But you'll like see different dots, 
and this line oh, going right. and kind of connecting different dots. Yeah. And and then you can literally scroll through that and you can just be like, here's the end of the game, which is actually where it opens at the end. So I think it is interesting that it it's very over like you can literally look at this and figure out how much longer the game's going to go uh, on. Speaking of what is the do you know the symbolism of red strings? The first thing that came to my mind was the Kabbalah red string kind of uh, bracelets. But I did not have something to do with fate or metaphoric. Yeah, the best like it could be, you know, the yeah, the strings woven by the fates. But I don't the red. I don't know. Um, yeah, be be a good question for. Yeah, <laughs> it's supposed to be. I you know, red strings. I think of them the as being um, protective, right? Um, so I don't know why red strings club you know um but the well, idea you're pulling is strings to... yeah right right um but i don't know um maybe the strings of the heart yeah uh it's a bunch of it's like yeah i i, I also thought of the bracelets first um but who knows uh there's also um have you heard of something called the red string of japan uh have i <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure. It sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah. Uh, often in Japanese and Korean culture, it is thought to be tied around the little finger. According to Chinese legend, the deity in charge of the red thread is believed to be, this is a name that I cannot pronounce, um, the old lunar matchmaker god who is in charge of marriages. It's all under this thing called the red thread of fate. Oh. And, um, yeah. And the people, the, the studio that made Dreamfall Chapters is Red Thread Games. Okay. Yeah. So I wonder if yeah they're getting it from the same place. Yeah. Um, so here's a story. One story featuring the red thread of fate involves a young boy walking home one night. A young boy sees an old man standing beneath the moonlight. The man explains to the boy that he is attached to his de- to his destined wife by a red thread. Uh, the man shows the boy the young girl who is destined to be his wife. Being young and having no interest in having a wife, the young boy picks up a rock and throws it at the girl, running away. Many years later, when the boy has grown into a young man, his parents arrange a wedding for him. On the night of his wedding, his wife waits for him in their bedroom, with the traditional veil covering her face. Raising it, the man is delighted to find that his wife is one of the great beauties of his village. However, she wears an adornment on her eyebrow. He asks her why she wears it, and she responds that when she was a young girl, a boy threw a rock at her that struck her, leaving a scar on her brow. She self-consciously wears the adornment to cover it up. The woman is, in fact, the same young girl connected to the man by the red thread shown to him by the old guy back in his childhood, showing that they were connected by the red thread of fate. Huh. So, you know, not exactly the same thing. Um, there's also a webcomic. <laughs> All right. You're, you're, going, you're going too deep on this. <laughs> I'm just looking. Well, so I think uh, also of... based on the red string of fate, though all of that on this notion of ah, marriage gotcha. and matchmaking. Uh, I think so. I think how it connects to the game is also kind of metaphoric with the dialogue trees generally, which is like to what extent, when you know the mechanics of how the world works, can you control it? And what is yeah. fate? Is fate actually free, or is it is all of reality really railroaded when you get down to it? If you knew how the dialogue tree of reality worked, would to you that be level able to just yeah yeah? Yeah. Well, and, and that's the central moral question of the game is about, you know, having to, to alter people to make them more like you think they should be. Yeah, either for their own sake or for whatever reason, you know. Uh, is there really freedom down at the bottom of it all? Or is it really just kind of mechanics all the way down? Turtles all the way down? All the way down, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Um, well, you know, I think... Uh, 
there's the the question of why you decide to arrange things the way that you arrange them. Let's say that you could understand the dialogue tree that is old reality, right? If you could understand the order of processes, why you make the decisions that you make um, might have more to do with something that is not mechanical, right? Um, and that's kind of true of a game too, right? Like there is, the game is an algorithm at the heart of it. It's programmed, but the player uh, makes decisions. And there are games where that changes the very nature of what the game is too. So, you know, just a thought. Well, the two ways the minigame got at it was uh, with the mixing drinks was kind of the emotional side of it. He didn't know exactly what they would say, but he could manipulate their emotions or get them in an emotional state. Whereas, yeah. as we understood, the Akara, the AI character, she could literally know... She knows psychology so well. She could just read into everyone all the way down. Which is, I guess, the rational side. Right. Yeah, yeah, knowing how things. Except the um, what's the name of the the weird smuggler character? The guy that looked like with the skull mask. Yeah, 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 that guy. Got it. I I'm only just I'm sort of realizing in retrospect that I think the game like most of the mysteries in the game are explained, but except for him, he's just like he's just there because I know Akara is like I can't read him. You know? Yeah, just kind of blatantly supernatural. Yeah. Well, the the mixing thing was had a supernatural edge too. Yeah, yeah, which I liked because it is like, particularly with a short running time and trying to be like, it's not that any of the this game doesn't have any like you know original ideas, and I guess you can argue that like there are no original ideas, but the way it integrates them all together is interesting. And and one thing I like is that it it does get away from like a very generic sort of neuromancer type of cyberpunk to one where it's a bit more balanced in favor of like the corporations are less cartoonishly evil and there are some like supernatural elements but other things about it are like fairly like things are today and actually it doesn't have a specific year that it takes place in um other than uh, all you know is that 2009 was a long time ago (laughs) yeah and the different mix of personalities they had i think a lot of it was uh there were kind of personality types Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know if they, they didn't exactly play off each other, but especially in the final trying to uh, uncover the big mystery, you're playing against the different personalities as personality types. So that's why I thought of a lot of it was gamifying like armchair psychology and like reading into personality types and trying to get information out. Mm-hmm. I did actually, I really liked the final puzzle. I mean, this is not really a puzzle oriented game, mm-hmm. but there are, there certainly are a few moments where, I mean, you're not, you're not just role playing. I suppose you could, but you are like trying to deduce things. Um, and I think th- there's a final puzzle in the game where you you basically can collect people's voices, and you're just in an office on a phone and calling various people, emu- pretending to be different other people with their voice to um, try to get information from them or persuade them to do something. And I, I thought that that was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I remember the. Uh... What's another anchorhead had something a little like this where you're trying mm-hmm. to investigate into uh, whatever it's big mystery and in your library and going through the yeah. different yeah. books and cross-referencing. And I thought this was a little like that. Like it's uh, it's still it's not, I wouldn't call it railroaded, but it's still all the information's there. You're going to get to it one right. way or right. another, but you can kind of pick your own path and you're it still keeps it like a game. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, one thing is I for some when I first started 
doing that area, I was very conservative because I'm like, oh, I'm going to blow my cover. And eventually I figured out like, oh, you actually can't do that. Like it is giving you freedom to sort of mess around, um, which, which is, which is nice. Like this is definitely a game that is, it's very focused on accessibility. Yeah. Like you're probably not going to play this game and be like, I got stuck in that puzzle and I never finished it. Right. Like people should be able to make it through. I think they read that Crimes and Mimesis essay or something. Like there's certain things, like for adventure games, if when you have a no-fail state, but you right. can creatively not make progress. And, you know, you got to... And the failures are like instructive how to make progress. And I thought this was taking ideas from that kind of idea. Because, yeah, you could not make progress, but in instructive ways that would tell you the direction you should go without right. actually just handing it to you either. Right. Right, because all the dead ends are, are fun or interesting in their own way. Yeah, I think one question this game asks through all of its little mechanics is um, the role that emotion plays specifically. I mean, obviously, right? But the role that emotion plays in deciding what happens. Um, and so one of the uh, ways that this occurs is that... Uh, you just get presented with, you know, uncomfortable questions and um, you're basically, the player is basically forced to, um, it reminds me of, you know, those, uh, those would you rather board games, but at a, yeah. like, at a much more sort of in-depth level. And so it has this sort of reflective element um, where, you know, it makes the player sort of question what, um what makes them tick uh so it's a weird it's kind of a weird game in that sense it's it's that this armchair psychology stuff is sort of like it sort of like reflects back at you as the player and it's not always comfortable at least i didn't find it always comfortable i don't know what you guys thought of it yeah well i i would agree with that um i mean one thing we talked about in a when we talked about democracy for realists on our just released episode is that there's like a lot of questions in the world about politics that, that people don't, don't really want to answer most of the time because answering it forced you to recognize that you're choosing from bad choices and that can be uncomfortable. So like for me, I mean, I think like maybe, maybe the big moment in this game is the one where, um, is it, is it, Akira or Akira, Akara? Akara. 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 And Ghost or um, Ghost is the smuggler? Yeah. Is the other yeah, okay. right. Ghost. Um, so Akara is, you know, quizzing you on like, okay, but if the mirror neuron system did go into effect, you know, yeah. how would you want to modify people's behavior, right? And, you know, you could just be consistent and be like, nothing, 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 individual freedom. But it's really easy to start, you know, I mean, I did the kind of classic thing to be like, okay, so like maybe there's no rape anymore. And then, of course, a car is like, oh, I see. So you're against the system in general, but when it's policies that you support, then you're in favor of it. And yeah. you're like, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried yeah. to be consistent on that. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, Kate, <laughs> at all. Wait, wait, I bet you were not consistent, Joanna. Um, I, yeah, I was not consistent, but I've made my peace with that. Like, I'm okay with, <laughs> you know, having opinions about the way other people should be and wanting to enforce those opinions. That's fine. <laughs> so, so if if you, so if if this game had provided more flexibility, you would have actually like joined the corporation and tried to to accelerate the progress of the system. Uh it depends. I you know, <laughs> I don't know that I would necessarily hop on board somebody else's agenda. All I'm saying is that I am comfortable 
I am comfortable saying that individual freedom is hardly the biggest strength of a society, but by like a right. long shot, right? Like there right. are so many things, you know, not everything, but there are many, many things that matter more than that. Um, so I get like very, uh, it's interesting because I was just um, having this big old argument about it, you know, uh, but but by definition in a social society, right? Like we are doing things together. So like, you know, that's how society is maintained and continued. So, you know, the, obviously the extreme other side of that, of like, you know, no individual freedom is fascism or something like fascism, but, uh, which is obviously not good. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but there's a, but for me, you know, I like, I have no problem saying like, I would eliminate rape tomorrow, um, even though that absolutely is impinging on individual freedom as a value. Like I, that's just the way it goes. I was worried mm -hmm. from the other direction, not trying to promote individual freedom, but really worried that it's this corporation that's in charge of that. And this like 14 year old in charge of this corporation that's going to be in charge of making the decisions about it. Yeah, mm -hmm. what yeah. You know, either what gives them the legitimacy, or like, do they really know what they're doing at the end of the day? Well, I, I have to even back up because we know who's really pulling all the strings in the end. Right, right. <laughs> but but when you're making that choice, you don't. Right. You're yeah. making it under the assumption right. of. Uh, but even uh, then, putting it into one entity's hands, can you trust that entity? Yeah, but yeah. I mean, we do that, right? Like, I mean, not one, but certainly a much smaller group than is than than is all of us as we do it anyway so well it's yeah it's all about it's like it's how many baskets are you putting your eggs in i mean that's you know one thing i think about sometimes is like you know there's an argument that the best form of government is a benevolent dictatorship but you just it's just hard how do you know that the dictatorship is benevolent when you create it you know yeah yeah well, as mechanically, when you're talking about the uh, armchair psychology, how that works in the game is that people will give different answers depending on the emotional state they're in. Mm -hmm. So reading into that, that's just the note I made related to that. One one mechanic I really liked is that, um, you know, you there were these little quizzes after you talk to people and you reward it for paying attention or often just re reading people because you didn't necessarily have the answer to a number of the questions depending on the path you took. And then you'd get the little memory eraser pill so that you could repeat some conversations selectively and like choose different answers. Uh, and I thought that was really in interesting combined with um, the fact that the game does not allow save scumming. You can't like reload old saves and try different things. So in that playthrough, you're locked into that path. Right. Yeah. With the exception, did you use, did either of you guys use the amnesia pills at all? Uh, I, I did once for the, yeah. I forget now her role, the lusty one, Larissa. Uh, but she was the one that particularly would have rather yeah, different answers. Director. The one that would like yeah, if you yeah. didn't have her in the right emotional state, you wouldn't get anything. Actually, I, yeah, I could yeah. even be missing which one it was, but there was one in particular. Like there are two emotional states she could be in, and her answers mm -hmm. would be very different, especially on the key information you needed. And I had to use it for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do we feel about like the general process of like that you sort of have this this notepad, this checklist and you're just sort of sucking up information and trying to, you know, 
Yeah, well, actually, find out the answers uh, thing. interesting about the mechanic itself because it was a little kind of artificial that a car just knows mm-hmm. everything and is playing with you. Because my when I was looking at it, when I was thinking about it later, I was thinking this would be great for a detective game where he's the detective is asking himself these questions like how would this person, you know, what's his motivation? And he's asking himself mm-hmm. and trying to answer his own questions is how it could kind of work naturally. But I guess for this game, you know, they wanted to use that mechanic and just had a car that knows everything to actually make the mechanic work. Of being able yeah. to read into people's attitude and then know at the end whether you're actually right or wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One thing I did want to touch on is that, of course, sticking the landing in, in any story is hard. And for me, uh, I really like the ending of this game. And I particularly like the little flashback scene to them, you know, drinking on the roof. And, you know, I guess I would say that this is this is going to be very much a your mileage may vary thing. But often, anytime a, a game or a writer tries to be like, here's what I've learned about life. Like nine times out of 10, it's going to be pretty eye-rolly. Yeah. And that one I was like, oh yeah, like that's, you know, where it talks about kind of, it actually starts, oh God, I should have written better notes. But it starts getting into like, actually something you say a lot, Joanna, a lot of time, like wherever we are, however privileged or disadvantaged we are, like we all have our own happiness and our own suffering and we sort of, you know, make our place where we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, did you did you respond to that also? Um, I mean, I think that... Uh... Yeah, I mean, I mostly I agree with what you're saying. I think that it's very much about, uh, the, well, there at least there is that aspect of it being, like, in terms of control, there's, at the end of the day, there's only so much, right, that every individual mm-hmm. has. And there's a question of, like, well, the way I always put it is that um, if you look at other people as being systems, um, then, and you give them the benefit of understanding that the things that you don't consider to be rules that they do still apply the way your rules apply to you um so Mm -hmm. like uh, another person has um you know has believed something that you think is totally irrational but for them it's it might as well be objectively true it has all of the same effects right and then for you Mm -hmm. it's some other thing so the so the, the role the job is basically to compare instead of comparing the content it's to compare the structure right so instead Mm. of saying this rule is ridiculous it's this structure is like this structure in my life and both of them act this way right so for example i uh was recently talking to somebody we have we have a mutual friend who's very paranoid um and uh somebody was saying i don't know why anybody puts up with her and i'm like well if you respect the rules of her paranoia and understand that the things that are real for her might as well be literally real you know um mm-hmm. you end up in a situation so that like and then that that that's that's where it comes down that's what it comes down to for me right um and that the game kind of there's sort of a tension there, right? Um, because you can talk about individual freedom in terms of what the laws are and what a person is allowed to do. Uh, you know, what is socially and legally acceptable in the system. But there's a secondary question about what a person is allowed to do because of the way they perceive what they are capable of and what's happening around them. Um, so the emotional states of a character has a lot to do with what that character will do because it has to do with what they'll be able to see. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and, and that's, that's also in, in, you know, the central question of the game about, you know, 
are are people physiologically capable of feeling unhappiness you know and what does that mean to to take that away yeah. as part of their identity is it part of like who they are or are they something underneath their emotions and then the emotions can get away and away from who they are which is the argument that i think the 14 year old was making the ceo yeah right and then and then if you know are do emotions act kind of like you know book learning does or school learning or skill learning in that it changes mm-hmm. what you're capable of doing it's like a mechanic that's part of that you put into like the whole the whole thing right so uh you know on a good day when you're feeling good you can do all the things that you can do only better and maybe some things that you can't normally do right maybe maybe not mm-hmm. um but so there's also like you know are you something underneath are emotions part of who you are but then secondarily are they kind of like pills you know like that give you abilities or they kind of like skills in a game right where you like well mm-hmm. i have 10 experience points in this right so yeah yeah i don't know i'm i'm a high level sad sack <laughs> Go ahead. Oh yeah. What struck me about the ending is just, I realized how many games actually don't end on kind of, you don't really save the world at the end mm-hmm. and the world's still kind of screwed. Probably yep. maybe. Uh, and I was just thinking, there's not many games that actually do that with the, the, what the, the memory that came to me was the end of uh, another world, which kind of also ends on a sad note. Mm-hmm. And I, I was wondering why that is that the memory I get, but yeah, it's just you don't really save the world at the end. And um, oh, another thing because it's a sh- it's a rather short game, and it actually mm-hmm. plays a lot in relationships, but they don't have much time to actually develop the relationships just yeah. because it's kind of short. But yeah, it it hand waves at that, so it still touches. Yeah. I mean, it's true that, like, this game could be twice as long as it is, and I think it, ha- I mean, it certainly has enough material to fill that. Um, I, I suspect it was a, just a combination of of time and budget and scope more more than anything. That this is just a, a three-person team making their second game. And, uh... Yeah, but basically, at the end, uh, yeah. you, uh... Well, you kind of know what it is, because it's a flashback from the very beginning. From the beginning, <laughs> But um, yeah, you yeah. don't have much time to give information because you know you're, you're falling yeah. down a building. You're falling. You're falling. You just from have a few part. moments to say something, so you make it important. I love that. And so, uh, Joanna, I go I, ahead. Yeah, well, I'll just say I didn't give them. I don't. I from a traditional game, I didn't give them what would probably be the important information. I gave the information that would be important for that character at that moment in the last mm-hmm. like what's going to be seconds of his life, which I thought was really touching to me in a kind of like last of us kind of way like at the end of the day mm-hmm. like if this is your final moment like what's most important to you and it's not like the kind of hero's quest of a traditional game mm-hmm. that decision i guess i guess we can not spoil it in case any any readers want to well, actually what well, what the heck we probably should just put a spoiler warning here i think before i spoil things but i i really like that do, do you know you remember what we were talking about joanna no so just this this is at the very end where like you're about to hit the pavement and um, Br- Brandeis uh, yeah. can either say like say how much I love you so much you know I care so much about you or here's the thing about the conspiracy you need to be aware of and you only have enough time to say one of those two things. Oh right, 
Right. Yeah. Um, what what one did you pick, Joanna? Uh, I went with the emotional one, the non here's the conspiracy information one. <laughs> and that was totally me. We're romantics. I can. Yeah. I love you guys. Definitely. Yeah. I, I I didn't, but I was more tempted to do so than I have ever been in any. So you know, it it, it made a good push for it. Yep. So I guess to relate it back to the conversation we were having, what do you guys think? How do you think Akara serves to help ground, um, either ground players in um, in thoughts about identity or distract players in in terms of uh, questions about like how to handle identity or like what identity is politically? Hmm. Oh, I mean, Akara is is the narrative device that mm-hmm. that that challenges the player's power essentially because yeah because donovan is sort of the master of his space and you're you know mixing the drinks in your magic way and you're getting the answers to your questions and you're basically Mm -hmm. the master of your domain and then akara says you know but wait is what you're doing right do you actually know what you're doing were you actually paying attention to anything that was said to you um and 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 i like that i mean just because game and there's a criticism that i often see about of game critics which is that if you're the sort of person who plays 50 or 100 games a year, what appeals you you place an unusually strong weight on novelty or things that are just different than most video games. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm not a professional games critic, but I often I have that perspective. So because so many games are just unremittent power fantasies, I I always enjoy it when something pushes back on that. Yeah, yeah, that here, has yeah. to do with the end I was talking about. Hmm. Uh, I don't have anything more to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I well, and we we're at even with some we're at fifty five minutes. So even with some editing, this will be a, a good chunk of stuff. Cool. Um, so okay. yeah, thank you for joining us Kate. so much, um, Kate. I also oh, okay. realized uh, that I did one last thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah just yes, that please. the uh, the uh, it was a game of mini games, but the mini the way the mini games connected with the content. So I guess because uh, mm-hmm. pottery, you're shaping their you know their personalities, and mm-hmm. um, what was the other one? Mixing drinks, yeah, yeah mixing, mixing drinks. their emotional state. So there's a there's a French movement called Willipo, which said you you play with the mechanic, like the the structure of something, but the structure should match the content. Yeah. So yeah, mm. I thought yeah. this On game point. was good about doing that. Yep. Okay, that's uh, the last note I had. Cool. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I did want to say something which I just remembered, which is like literally 30 minutes before we started this, I went on Twitter oh, and I saw. There was some, this is not bad, actually. So somebody was, there was a picture, it was somebody had written a Twitter post in Spanish. And there was a picture of my book in the post. And the one thing I was able to get before I translated it, even the translation was a little rough, but was that the book was recommended to this person. They were like basically home because something was big and crazy where they were. So they were basically home reading for a long time. And this, my book had been recommended to them by i think it's jordi DePaco, who is the writer designer of the red strings club oh yay great so Small i was world. i was that's I awesome. was like whoa like but i'm just like i did like i had I, I had like a super brief twitter exchange just where i said the nice thing about his roommate but i i think this may be unconnected because the time like there's no way that he's like got my book read my book recommended it you know someone but like the timeline doesn't mesh right yeah 
So I think it's just a total coincidence, yep. but it's really weird. Or he had read your book and then your comment primed it. Right, or maybe, yeah, maybe he'd already read it, exactly. But it's, it's so weird because I always feel weird when people read my book because, like, I did write it in college. Like, there's a bunch of things I would change about it if I wrote it today. I know that feel. You know, I know you know that feeling. And your book's a lot more recent than my book. It is. But... Uh, um, yeah, my book is still forthcoming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, 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 I'm waiting for it. But, uh, but yeah, but it's still nice. It was cool. cool. All right. Well, I should probably get going. Oh, yeah, you'll go. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Kate. I also realized that I didn't introduce you, so then like later we'll edit something before then introducing you. This okay. is Christopher Cade Mosley. Uh, he Hello. lives in Japan. If you have a, if uh, you have a, a bio, you want to send He's us. an attorney in Japan. Yeah, human rights law. Like human just rights. like Phoenix Wright. I'm just gonna echo. That's gonna be fun. <laughs> Except it. Um, I don't. Have you played any of the Phoenix Wright games, Chris? Uh, no, not the Phoenix. So, I mean, I, I I've watched. Yeah, I know what it is. Yeah, I've watched like let's plays of them. But do you know in the localization in the very first game they decide that they're gonna localize it so it takes place in Los Angeles? Oh, great, brilliant. But this very quickly becomes problematic. Because we all of the games, by definition, are both take place in Japan and are at some level about the Japanese court system, which is like why yeah, yeah, there's like this enormous presumption system. of guilt. Yeah. But apparently, like, so I was looking at like a wiki the other day. So apparently, one of the games were like, there's a whole crime because someone has a gun, right? Which, like, in the United States is like not a crime. Make sense, so they have yeah. to, so they're like, in 2011, a law was passed in the United States that made gun, on, it, so only the police officers can have guns. <laughs> oh, That's gosh. right. Go over right. well. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, this thing just, just spi- it completely spirals out of control. Yeah, wow. Um, where they like talk about hot dogs instead of sushi and, and whatnot. Uh, so that just made me think of that. It's very funny to see. Brilliant. Okay. Well, I guess that's it. Uh, Joanna, I'll let you go. Uh, We're talking Monday, right? We are talking Monday. That's correct. Okay. I'll see you then. And thank you so much for joining us, Okay. Thanks, sir. This was fun. Bye, guys. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks. And we're back. Next up is is Joanna's joke of the month. It's a really good joke, guys. I don't believe you. Okay. I'm ready. Here we go. How did Captain Hook die? Uh, he was eaten by a, a crocodile. Jock itch. Okay. I don't get I it. I didn't think it was funny. I don't get it. He has a hook for a hand. Oh, god damn it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> did you really not get it? No, because I, no, I did not get it. Jesus Christ. But, uh, but he also has a normal hand. Yeah, but. Come on, it's a joke, Dylan. <laughs> it's a jock. Uh, okay, thank you, Joanna, for the. It was a good joke. <laughs> Damn it! Did you did you make that joke or did you find it somewhere? No, uh, my dad loves that joke. Your loves dad, joke. your dad loved that joke. Great. What? Okay. And, and look what happened to him. Oh my god! <laughs> Such an asshole. <laughs> Don't, don't lie to anyone. For anyone who was unaware of what happened to my dad, he died of a heart attack in 2014, 13, I don't know, December something of the end of either 13 or 14. But I, and I bought Joanna's a bunch of fruit snacks, so she has no grounds to call me an asshole. <laughs> None whatsoever. Kroger's dinosaur fruit snacks are the best, guys. Yeah, you yeah. should check them out. Yeah, I will see if, I'll see if I can find it them around here. It wasn't really a heart attack that's 
an oversimplification. Yes. But it's it was heart related. It was unexpected. Yes. It was a bummer. It was. It was no a, more jokes. It was a bummer for everyone involved except the people who really didn't like him. Who didn't like him? Like no, I, not, no one as far as I know. But you know, there's always like if you work in a place, there's always some coworker who thinks you're terrible, right? No matter who's really excited that you've dropped over dead at work. Wow. Yeah, I mean they don't say it, but they're like, "Well, that's out of my oh hair." Oh my god! Stop talking. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, what yeah all right um so next is Dylan's oh, game go ahead game corner yeah. yeah so uh i'm trying to this is actually two interrelated subjects but i'll probably start with the game first uh so we 1998 if you ask me what was the best year for video games it would be 1998 which means that this year in 2018 has been the 20th year of a lot of different games i i love um I could not do all of them on the podcast, but I thought I would at least take a little time to highlight uh, Thief the Dark Project. Thief was released on uh, November 30th, 1998, so as of this recording, it had its 20th year anniversary a little ago, and is a game that is both really good on its own terms and also um, very innovative and uh, fairly influential. So I first played uh, Thief... A demo of Thief on the PC Gamer demo disc uh, in 1998, maybe early 1999. Um, and it's a game that has an immediate sense of style. The basic setup is that you, well, guess who you play in Thief the Dark Project? Joanna, that's, guess who you play? Who? Who do you think you play in Thief the Dark Project? Tell me. You can, no, I'm going to make you do this. What role do you play in Thief the Dark Project? Oh, you. You, the player. Yes, the player is a... You definitely play the Dark Project. God, fuck you. I hate you forever. <laughs> oh, my God. So you're a thief um, in a sort of... In something that's just called the city. Uh, and one thing that this game does, it's very good working with minimalism. Like, a lot of games are like, either they don't care about their story at all, or they're just like big exposition dumps about like, here's the whole history of everything, right? And you're just in this sort of place that's sort of Middle Ages-ish uh, called um, just the city, and you just go and, and steal stuff. And so every mission will start with you having a little mission briefing. Your character, Garrett, uh, who's be beautifully voiced, um, talking about you know what he knows, what his objective is. Uh, and so in the first one, it's like there's this manor that you have to rob. And it's like, I'm going to go in. I'm going to get the stuff. Here's my kind of info, info. There might be this hidden entrance here, and I'm going to go steal the stuff. Um, and so while, you know, things like the heist movie have a long history in other forms, uh, this is very unusual because, you know, when you get in a game, it's in first person, you know, you and you have different things as one does. You know, you have, you know, in the, the slot number one is for your sword, right? So you're, you're you see this mansion. And there's like a guard patrolling and you're like, when you play video games, you're always using knowledge from other video games, right? right? There's certain sort of genre conventions that slide along. So in the late 90s, if it was a first person game and you had a weapon, that meant you were supposed to kill everybody. So you can like go take your sword and go up and try to kill this guard and he will kick your ass immediately and you will die. And that will be that because you are not a warrior. You are a thief. And a sword is like just your last line of defense. Um... And so this is actually, it's it's a very much a stealth game. It's a game not about killing guards, but about avoiding them. Or worst case scenario, you know, knocking them out. Um, it is a game that 
is about observing your environment, listening to things. Uh, one of the origins of Thief from a development standpoint is the designers looking at last studios realized that there were very few games that really made use of sound. That almost any game you played, you know, music was nice and sound effects were nice, but you could just turn off the volume and still play the game completely successfully, right? That sound was not actually in, integrated into the mechanics. So this is a game yeah. that's very much about listening um, where people are, different, um, you know, what you're stepping on, and then using a bunch of tools in your toolkit to get in and get out. Uh, in the first mission, it's just stealing some stuff, right? It's basically a training mission. But it's brutally hard, but only because you don't know how to play this type of game. Once you know how to play, it's completely reasonable difficulty level. Uh, and Thief is one of the earlier instances of what would later be called the Immersive Sim. Immersive Sims are a very sp specific type of game uh, and this is mo much more, this is sort of a critical term. The industry doesn't really use it in the same way they'll use like action right. RPG. Nothing will ever be sold as an immersive sim. Uh, but it's a game almost always in first person, which uh, is basically about creating a very detailed world that has a bunch of rules. You know, so it'll all usually it'll have working physics. It'll have different kind of rules driven interactions between objects and everything's not just scripted. And what that means is that in, in a, you know, a normal game, you'll script it where, like, you know, if the sword hits X, then they take damage and, you know, they die. And if you use the sword on anything else, nothing happens because it hasn't been scripted by the designers. Whereas in an immersive sim, you'll be like, okay, fire reacts this way, water does this stuff, a sound propagates in these ways so on these materials. So Deus Ex is an example. Of Deus Ex is, it, which comes out two years after Thief, is generally considered sort of the er immersive sim. Um, but they're often compared because Deus Ex is a maximalist immersive sim. Deus Ex is a game that says you yeah. can basically do anything and approach any problem in any way. You can fight. You can you know, go in guns blazing. You can use diplomacy. You can use stealth, right? Where Steve, Thief is a minimalist immersive sim. It's saying you have to use stealth, right? I mean, you can technically do other things, but really this is a game built for stealth. Yeah. stealth. But you can do it in all sorts of ways. It's not like a puzzle where you have to be, figure out the answer and that's how you get by the guard. Right? There's a yeah. million different ways to get by the guard. And it, and it starts you off with, with these different tool bits. So you can do something as simple as walk up behind them when they can't hear you and whack them over the back of the head and make them unconscious. And then, But then their bodies can be discovered by guards. And guards have certain behaviors and their bodies are discovered. So then you can go and drag them behind a corner. And then there's rules for, how, for light propagation. So, But you also have tools. You have water arrows as one of your most common arrows. You have a bone arrow. And you have like broadhead arrows, which you can use to kill people. But that's not really the point because if you shoot somebody with an arrow – it leaves blood behind, and then guards might find the blood, and that will alert them, right? Yeah. So it's sort of messy. And one of the cool things about that is all these mechanics are saying you can keep kill people, but that's not really what we want you to do. That's not really what this game is about. So without the developers forcing your hand, the mechanics sort of push you to non-lethal methods, which is also a trademark of the immersive sim, generally, is that it has non-lethal options. Um, and so you have water arrows where you can put out torches. Now, of course, if a torch suddenly goes out, guards will notice that too, that that doesn't necessarily tip them off. Yeah. Um, but then there's like moss arrows where you can shoot uh, on a, a metal surface and it'll like grow a thing of moss, which you can then step quietly on. There are rope arrows, which you can embed into any wooden surface and a rope will climb down, which you can then use that rope to climb up and get into the rafters. You can use it to swing because it kind of models the physics of swinging across spaces. And so it's about you being this sort of athletic monkey thief who can get around all these different places. Um, in the second level, you know, so you, you, you play this game, you kind of think you figured out this is a game where I'm going to go in and case joints. And, and then very controversially in the second level, you have to go and rob a tomb. And in this tomb is full of zombies. 
and zombies cannot be killed and they can't be knocked out. Uh, so it becomes a very different game in the second level, sort of a horror game. It's you have to you can, but you can outrun them and you can. It's like a different sort of stuff. Um, and there are a lot of people who played Thief and are like, man, I really wish the whole game was just like the first level, which is a big pure stealth thing. But Thief goes places. It has fantasy elements. It has fictional religions. Um, the storytelling is really good. It uses cutscenes that are part a mix of animation and rotoscoping. It has a lot of ambient sounds, but also has like a sort of Nine Inch Nails industrial rock soundtrack, right. which is like nothing else in gaming. Um, it just oozes style and sort of drift feeds you narrative and information about this world, but really, you know, we talk about talk about believability, really grounded in this character. So this is not a game where you just go and do whatever. You're really playing Garrett in his sort of cynical motive you know generally greed driven motives but but not being a jerk you know having that sort of you know the kind of classic anti-hero having a certain core of honor and decency uh one of the ways this is reinforced is that the game has different difficulty levels like most games of the time and most games when you increase difficulty levels they're just adjusting the math you do less damage uh, enemies have more health whatever right Whereas what Thief does, it does that a little bit, but the main thing is that it changes your actual objectives. So on the, on the main level, like if you go on the normal level, it'll be like you have to go and steal a certain amount of gold from this mansion. At the medium level, it's like you have to steal gold from this mansion and uh, also find the special artifact and, you know, don't kill more than five people. And the hardest level, it'll be like you're a thief, not a murderer. Don't kill anybody and also get all this stuff. And it's one of the interesting things where the highest level, it's the only game I, I can think of where I always played on the highest difficulty because the highest difficulty is really how the game is meant to be played. It's really saying these are kind of, it, the difficulties are role-playing, how much you're role-playing the character. And if you're role-playing them more, that's harder because it's more restrictive. And so that's a really clever way of doing difficulty that I haven't seen pretty much any other game do. Um, let's see, what else? It's not the first game to use stealth. But it's worth noting just how back then, how uncommon that was. And almost 1998 was a year in which a game called Tenchu Stealth Assassins came out, Metal Gear Solid came out, and Thief came out, which are these three big stealth games. Like 1998 was the year of stealth. But these other games were about stealthily killing people. Or in Metal Gear Solid, you know, if things went down, you had a pistol and you could shoot people. Yeah. Thief was the first game to be really pure stealth and to really build a sort of stealth ecosystem that wasn't just not be seen by people, right? This sort of went yeah. beyond that. Uh, and as a result, pretty much every dedicated stealth game to come after is indebted to thief and in fact in the early zeros it became sort of a fad to have stealth segments in tons of games often to the great annoyance of players who were like what is this and they weren't very they were kind of undercooked right it was just a way to uh, add yeah. variety i actually don't love stealth segments in, yeah. in video games either like um the one in there is one in dreamfall right yes where you're, that one with the, it's really quite but it's also not a well-designed stealth sequence like it's very common yeah right. that Basically, because they don't have the thief engine, they don't have all these mechanics that support stealth. It just becomes a very basic, you know, don't be seen by dudes, and if you get seen, you fail and have to start over. Yeah. And one of the things that thief does, and that almost all immersive sims does, is that it's not a binary. There's sort of layers of failure. So when you're seen, it's not like game over, reload. Now you can run away. You can throw a smoke grenade to try to hide. You know, you get these different tools to kind of escape. Yeah, exactly. And um, and the game has a very interesting sort of uh pagan element where you end up having to essentially fight an old god and there are monsters but then there's also people running around so there's kind of these different like i said different types of stealth games going on um it's followed up in 2000 by a game by thief 2 of the metal age until the end of time people argue about which one is better thief 2 is really doubles down on the more straight straightforward you know 
casing the joint heist stealth um and and steps away a little bit from you know fighting monsters and things like that because the original thief is by my understanding it had a really troubled development and sort of came together at like the last minute before they pushed yeah. it out it like started as like a big weird immersive sim fantasy rpg and like sort of transformed into a stealth game at the end um whereas thief 2 is built with that in mind uh, is also lovely uh, it came out in 1998. It sold modestly, you know, enough for that studio to keep going, but not not much more. And Thief 2 came out in 2000, and Looking Glass Studios, the developer, shut down shortly thereafter, they being the studio that essentially birthed the immersive sim with Ultima Underworld in 1991. Um, a few years later, I ended up hanging out on Through the Looking Glass, or TTLG, which was a set of game forums dedicated to their games and sort of a hangout for people who really liked those games. That is a forum in which I actually met um, Christopher Cade Mosley, He's from there and a number of, of other people who I sort of still uh, keep in touch with to this day. And actually, um, as a result of the Thief 20th anniversary stuff, I went poking back into TTLG, found a Discord channel that was associated with it, and sort of reconnected with some people. And that was really nice because in my youth, I, um, you know, learned my some of my terrible social skills. Or let me rephrase that. I had really terrible social skills, and I learned somewhat better on how to interact with other people by hanging on internet forums but you you learn by by failure yeah so i got tlg especially right well no because i got banned from a bunch of forums over time and ttlg was the one i didn't get banned from where i kind of you know figured things i both had figured things out enough to that point but also it was a nice enough community and i could sort of fit in and figure things out um my it's also remind i was thinking about this the other day it reminds me you know sometimes i got banned because i had legit you know social and emotional issues and i would you know lash out and i would maybe deserve it right but sometimes i would get banned because you know administrators were crazy and on power trips right and my all-time favorite banning was i was on one small forum for a short period of time in which i i was private messaging with another person and i noted that the you know i referred to the the site admin as sort of authoritarian or i think i said they were dictatorial i got banned from this because they were reading people's private messages and objected to me describing them as dictatorial you know completely unaware of the irony of you know what exactly kind of person reads people's private messages right right? (laughs) so even at the time even at the time i wasn't like mad i was like really like you're not you're not seeing the problem here (laughs) you're not seeing how this completely yeah so um so thief is lovely and it has it's a 20 year old single player game that has an active fan community to this day people make fan missions they craft them because they have this love of this game and um and because there's nothing else quite like it a a few years ago they tried to do a thief reboot which was widely viewed as having a lot of pressure on it to be financially successful and of course then making a bunch of compromises to contemporary design trends having quick time events and making it sort of an action game and dark and gritty and various things and so as a result it pleased nobody and didn't sell very well which is you know always the thing you know it's the thing with selling out if you sell out you make sure you do it well because otherwise you have nobody (laughs) (laughs) um because over time ultimately um square enix uh, they of final fantasy got the thief license and had no fucking clue what to do with it Uh, and so mismanaged that project uh, very badly but still love the game so that was my little game corner for uh this month All right. Um, so now we're on to the book nook, right? Uh-huh. Um, and the book that I am 
going to talk about today is Damon Voices by Philip Pullman. So in September, a book, a nonfiction book by Philip Pullman, who is famous for having written the tr- uh, his Dark Materials trilogy, um, uh, he wrote a nonfiction book. It's called uh, Damon Voices, and it's about uh, the the craft of writing, basically. Um, and the essays, because it's several pieces, explore various aspects of it. And also, he does reflect on some of his own pieces. And there are some areas where he answers questions that probably a lot of readers have wondered about. Mm-hmm. So for that reason alone, you might want to read it. If you are an aspiring writer, it's very interesting. Um, uh, but one of the things that I think he talks about, one of the most interesting um parts of the book he talk he has a section on the responsibility of responsibilities of a writer and a storyteller um and it's very interesting uh and not necessarily what you would expect um i think when you hear that phrase the responsibilities of a writer and a storyteller there is you immediately think of ethics of social responsibilities yeah of social responsibilities um but the very first thing he talks about is making sure that you get paid for your work Mm -hmm. and um, cultivating a reputation for wanting to get paid a substantial amount. So it's very funny because he'll be like, regardless of whether or not you like money, you know, or you you like uh, dealing with it or having it, you must at least appear like you want to have a lot of it so that people don't feel like they can offer you a small amount and get away with it. So he thinks nobody should write fan fiction, for instance. Uh, Right. Well, just... That if you and he and what he says is like the plain fact of the matter is there's this romance about you know having a day job and writing on the side and you know eventually making it that's actually that's actually extremely stressful because nobody wants to live in financial uncertainty, right? So, so this, so this is for people, people who want to be professional writers, yes. So, right. so he's saying if you if you just if fan fiction is your hobby, then you know go for yeah. it, but if you want to someday be a paid writer, don't do that. Yeah, and and make sure that don't don't shy away from the idea that writers should be paid, right? That good writing isn't like this ethereal good thing. That right. it's something that you pay people for. Um, but he also talks about, and this is like where um, my shtick comes in. He talks about a responsibility to language, um, and that for me, you, for Dylan's rolling his eyes at me right now, but that's like a big deal. Um, and so I think. And I do think that one of the reasons why – so The Golden Compass by Philip Holman is um, absolutely my favorite book. Um, has been my favorite book since I read it when I was like, I don't know, in middle school or something. And so uh, I think one of and the what, reasons And what, did you, what that, did you get for your birthday, incidentally? Pause. Okay. So one of the things that Dylan got me for my birthday was a necklace with a miniature copy or like at least the cover of, of the golden compass. Um, it's very cute. And Dylan's a great human being. Back to, <laughs> back, oh my God. Back to the, anyway. So, um, so I'm just going to like, I'm going to read this quote. Uh, Once we become conscious of the way language works and our relationship to it, we can't pretend to be innocent about it. It's not just something that happens to us and over which we have no influence. If human beings can affect the climate, we certainly we can certainly affect the language, and those of us who use it professionally are responsible for looking after it. 
This is the sort of taking care of the tools that any good worker tries to instill in an apprentice, keeping the blade sharp, oiling the bearings, cleaning the filters. I don't have to tell any of you the importance of having a good dictionary, or preferably several. Every writer I know is fascinated by words and developed the habit of looking things up at a very early age. Words change, they have a history as well as a contemporary meaning. It's worth knowing those things. We should acquire as many reference books as we have space for, old and out-of-date ones as well as new ones, and make a habit of using them, and take pride in getting things right. The internet also knows a thing or two, but I still prefer books. There's a pleasure in discharging this responsibility, of sensing that we're not sure of a particular point of grammar, for example, and in looking it up and getting it to work properly. So... One of the things that I like about this discussion of the responsibility to language is like the discussion about money, um, it isn't it isn't some ethereal notion of what's noble, right? Right. Here Philip Pullman's like, there's a craft and you can get good at it by practicing, right? By practicing it, you can get good at it and it's not about, you know, like, you know, it's very practical. Um, and one of the things that I like about it is that for me, at least, the product of what comes out of thinking like this is kind of magical, right? It does seem to transcend the uh, the specific craft that he's talking about, and it does seem to be larger than life. And that would indicate, for you know, for uh, aspiring writers and active writers, that it's that getting to that point, which I think a lot of people want to do, isn't about having some magical personality trait or intelligence level um or perception it's a just about being conscientious and responsible in 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 a very practical way um in terms of in terms of these skills and that's really like for me that was one of the major um points i will say one of the things that i um found a little bit tedious about the book is that because there are sev it's several speeches and several um essays and stuff there are repeated topics um you know because they're written into so they were originally written in independent of this for book. different places yeah. covering the same thing so you see some repetition um and the plain fact of the matter is is that pullman has some literary preferences that i straight up don't have and don't necessarily like so you know reading about he will spend a lot of time with a text that i think is only mediocre um and that that is just my own preference but on the whole, if you're the sort of person who likes to read books about writing, that's a very select audience, I'm aware. I was going to say, if you're the sort of person, yeah. But I am one of them. I highly recommend this book. Um, it is called Damon Voices by Philip Pullman. It just came out last September. Damon, D-A-E-M-O-N? Yeah, like, yeah. like you know, from the Golden Compass. Um, anyways, but yeah, you should pick it up if you're interested in it. Um, and that is, like... Yeah, I, th I think that's really it. Okay. That sounds great. Uh, I, I guess I don't really have any questions. That, is, that sounds lovely. Thank you for sharing. Um, Buffy is, is now headbutting me, actually. Um, yep. Repeatedly, which means either she needs to eat food or she wants to go out. M more likely the former than the latter. Um, so how much time do you got? Uh, Probably not a ton. I'm going out to dinner okay. momentarily with Neil. Okay, so we need to talk about what we're doing for uh, for Media Club next month, and then I'll, I'll deal with Buffy. Uh, we, we had a little discussion offline about what our Media Club would be, and we actually decided that we are going to do me writing the poem, God Help Us, 
um, over the next three weeks for the JP and Illamot playing together for Media Club. Uh, we may also dabble with Return of the Obra Dinn, uh, that's TBD, and we will let you know. Okay, and uh, that is all. Um, we will see you, we'll have a, record another episode in just three weeks, so uh, you should get uh, an extra dose of yeah. this lovely podcast all soon. Right. Okay, bye.